my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm talking with Joe Terry, the widow of Chief Chip Terry. He was a firefighter, uh, a chief, a, a man's man. He worked for the city of Covington for nearly 30 years. Chip struggled with PTSD and he eventually lost his battle leaving behind his, his wife, Joe, and, and six children and one grandson. Joe established the, the Chip Terry Fund to provide educational, financial, and emotional support along with counseling to police, fire, and other emergency personnel and their families, particularly those affected by PTSD and other occupational related stress disorders. The, the work that you're doing is amazing. And I, I'm going to thank you for coming on, Joe. And I, I'd like to get maybe just a little bit of your background. And, um, you know, did you, were you born and raised in Kentucky? Well, first, let me say thanks for hosting me. Um, it's a pleasure to do this because it just helps our mission immensely to get the word out. And, um, you know, we're doing more work in Florida now. And, you know, you have a presence in Florida that'll help me support our mission and our first responders there. So thank you for hosting. Um, to answer your question, yes, I was born and, born and raised um, in Kentucky, Northern Kentucky. So we sit right there on the Ohio River bordering Cincinnati. I grew up in a family with six children myself, um, my parents, and uh, met Chip when we were still in college. I was studying to be a physical therapist. So I graduated from the University of Kentucky back in 1985. You know, I've lived my whole life here in Kentucky. Was Chip Going to University of Kentucky as well? Is that where you guys met? No, he is from Ludlow, Kentucky, which isn't far from where I grew up. He's on a river town, and we met, as most young kids do, in a bar playing quarters. And um, <laughs> started dating while he was actually taking a break from college. He couldn't figure out what he wanted to do with his life. He was volunteering at Ludlow Fire Department at the time and studying um, music at the university and Northern Kentucky University. So he was a um, fine arts major and when we met. Shortly after we met, he went on to get his paramedic license because um, I think he had decided he wanted to get into the fire service at that point, no one was hiring. So he completed his medic license. And at that time, 
medics in the state of Kentucky were separate from fire service. So he worked for a local um, EMS company running the, the medic unit. And then um, in 1986, he got on Covington Fire Department and we married shortly after that. So, you know, basically we were kids when we met and kids when we got married and I've lived the life of the fire service wife, you know, my whole adult life, basically. Did you end up going into physical therapy? Did, did you end up becoming a physical therapist? Yeah, I, I graduated from UK in 1985, um, started right away in an orthopedic practice. So my background is all orthopedics. By 1992, I had enough of working for people, so I opened my own clinic with Chip's help, and not, you know, we were just partners in everything, you know, we, were, we grew up together, he was my business partner, um, you know, he worked at the firehouse one day, and he worked with me on the other two, in between raising, you know, our six kids, so we were very busy, um, but it was a good life, you know. University of Kentucky, that's in Louisville? Lexington. Lexington, right. So that's right next door, right? Not far, not an hour apart. Oh, okay. My geography isn't that great with Kentucky. So Louisville's on the Ohio River, like Cincinnati, and Lexington is central state. You have six children. What, uh, what are the age ranges there? So the oldest is... 31, oh no, 30, 31, and the youngest is 17. Um, our four oldest are our biological children, and after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, we adopted our two youngest. So they're Haitian by birth, but um, ours by adoption. Can you tell me some more specifics about uh, what you're doing with, with the Chip Terry Fund? So if I'm going to give you the specifics, you want me to start with how we even got there or would you like the specifics first? Well, how about we go, uh, I, I think that you're probably the pro. Let's start with how you got there. So, you know, um, as you said earlier, Chip was a career first responder, first on the medic unit, then as a um, firefighter. He rose to the level of assistant chief in Covington and retired in 2012. And in 2012, there was a lot of stuff going on politically and economically with pensions, probably everywhere in the country, but you know, I can speak personally for Covington. And you know, it was constant battle back and forth with cutting services, browning out equipment, talk of closing, um, firehouses, limiting personnel, all of the things that make first responders anxious, you know, their safety is at risk, and so is the public safety. And he was passionate about following all of the normal standards. So at his retirement, he got up and spoke to the city commission and became very emotional about these events that were going on in our city. And there is a clip out there on the web of Chip um, in 2012, and he gets very emotional and breaks down about what first responders do and what they see. And, you know, we, we knew as a family, he would talk about his demons, and those were the runs that occurred 
throughout his career that he just wasn't able to shake. And, you know, these weren't runs that occurred right around 12. These were runs that occurred very, very early on. Like I can remember when we were first married, having him call me and he had ridden 24 hours on the paramedic unit and followed up with 24 more at the firehouse. And between those two 48 hours, but in that 48 hours, he had two SIDS fatalities and a um, heart attack. All three died. So he saw three deaths within two days as a young guy. And I remember back in the day with phones, him saying, I don't know if I can do this. And, you know, it was just, he was very emotional. And, and that stands out in my mind. Shortly after that, the chief of Covington told him, look, you know, you can't do both. You got to choose your career because, you know, you can't be at the same place at eight o'clock in the morning. If one one runs over, you're late for the other job. And luckily, Chip chose the fire service. You know, he gave up the medic, stayed on the fire department and, um, you know, quickly rose through the ranks. So some of those demons that he talks about in that video clip are really runs from the early part of his career. And he he gets very emotional and he starts to cry and he really is struggling to compose himself throughout that interview. But nobody thought anything of it. You know, here we are at the end of his career, supposed to be happy and he is emotional and sad and very somber. And, um, you know, there's a picture I use when I teach our trauma class of him standing with the chief and a couple other friends that came to watch. And he is a stone faced and, stoic and the other ones are laughing and having a good time and it's it's kind of haunting to look back on that now to realize that that day was such a tough day for him um and i'm sure it is for many first responders but you know he just let himself out there for the public to see and um nobody recognized it none of us that he was really struggling on that day and you know it's funny because he insisted that we not have a retirement party I think he was just so emotional about it. He, he didn't like calling attention to himself in the first place, but we never did have that retirement party for him because he insisted we not. We just kind of celebrated quietly. So that was 2012. You know, we move on with life. He struggled to find what he wanted to do. He was very young. He bounced around from a nonprofit to a couple other jobs. Um, never really liked any of it but knew he wanted to work and ended up teaching um, leadership classes at the University of Cincinnati's fire science program. By then he had earned his master's in leadership from Northern Kentucky University here and um, loved to teach and loved to lead. And that was just kind of an adjunct per, uh, position. So he also worked for a company called 1-800-BOARD-UP. And they're a national company, but he started out just going out on runs and boarding up people's property, you know, roof stuff, whatever they needed to do. And because of his background in business with me, he ended up managing the, the local franchise here in Cincinnati for the owner. You know, he just worked himself nonstop. So, you know, by 2015, we start to see Chip's personality change. So remember 2012 is when he talks about his demons in retirement. Three years later, you know, things aren't going so well within our own marriage. You know, we had been married for over 25 years. We're pushing 30 years by that time. 
and we have six kids and things just are not right. He's not connected with me. So we start to see this um, emotional kind of marriage up and down, like a lot of marriages go through. And I'm beginning to wonder, you know, if this is where divorce starts, you know, you disconnect and you have these little bickering back and forth. And he wasn't um, coming to bed at night on a regular basis. So our intimacy was kind of failing. And I'm thinking, he just doesn't love me anymore. Or I'm not pretty enough or, you know, you, all the things that a wife would begin to think. You start to get insecure in your own self. You know, personally, that makes you less committed to them, right? So in that relationship, you start to just drift apart. There were other things that we talk about in our seminar, um, the withdrawal, the things that happened even with my kids. So it wasn't just me. There were things that he did with our, our children that they were angry or upset about. And, you know, we labeled him a jackass. And in my work now with so many families and widows and families that are surviving PTSD, um, it's a common theme that the, the first responder becomes just a jerk. And what we know now is that that's not necessarily them, that the physiological changes that occur in the brain and the prefrontal cortex where your personality is housed and um, your fight and flight and that anger, all of those things in the brain are, are changing because of these cumulative traumas and PTSD. But when you're living that relationship, that's not what you're thinking. You're just thinking, man, is this worth it? So I can remember in 2016, 2017, with my oldest daughter saying, you know, I'll never leave him. These were my words, you know, I will never leave him. But if he walked out the door today, I wouldn't stop him. And that's heart-wrenching for me now because that had to be playing in his mind too. He had to know that a relationship wasn't good. And how much more damage did that attitude that I held cause him in his own mind? So these relationship issues that you're living with, um, you don't see outside of that. You don't see the bigger picture of what's going on with them because you're so trapped in your own emotional turmoil. And um, it just was playing out that way. So by summer of 2017, um, he proceeds to tell me that, well, we have an event, he's suicidal. And he, without giving the whole story away, he sought out treatment. He took himself to the University of Cincinnati's emergency room with suicidal ideation and called me while I was at work to tell me. And, and I was just stunned, astounded. So here I am pre-event 
an angry, bitter, upset spouse, then all of a sudden I become this frightened wife, like what is going on here? And in his psychiatric evaluation where I was present, the doc told him, you know, you're very lucky because men in your age group rarely are able to stop themselves once they get this far. And he said to this good little Catholic girl, you guys have a guardian angel. So I took it on faith that our medical community in this area had him covered. And Chip proceeded to tell that doc that day, doc, I'm a first responder and I've been doing a lot of reading and I think I have PTSD. And I'm like, what the heck? That's something that happens to our military. We had two Marines at the time. Didn't think it could, I never envisioned that this could be going on in our, in our first responders. And Chip was well-read. And by then, I, you know, I remember seeing him with the fire science magazines up in his office or on the computer. So he was doing his own research. And it wasn't just one clinician. You know, he told multiple people, I believe I have PTSD. So um, during that episode where he was um, under care, you know, they did the blood test and you know, all of the other workups that, that you would expect him to do. They put him on an antidepressant. Um, he quit drinking cold turkey. Um, and they put him in what's called an IOP, which is an intense outpatient program for substance abuse. And, you know, again, I'm still hearing those words that, you know, we have a guardian angel and I'm assuming that everything's gonna be fine. So he did his full nine weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it was of IOP, um, Monday through Thursday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And because he was so private, we didn't share this with anyone. You know, um, his boss knew, but it was a very small group of people that really knew what had happened to him because he was so private and he didn't want that stigma. And um, I, I bought into it and I kept it very, very closed. Who knew and who didn't know? And I just assumed we were getting the right help. He seemed happy. You know, we were connecting again, reconnecting. He was um, not as withdrawn. He was kind of back and forth with our family events again. Um, he wasn't an asshole anymore. He was, you know, this guy that I just all of a sudden thought, we got this, right? And so it was September of 2017 and he um, finished his IOP like on a Thursday. And we celebrated our 31st anniversary that Sunday before. And now by September 15th, he had purchased a gun, walked the flood wall took a bottle of bourbon, shot himself down on the flood wall. And his guys had to find him. To this day, those guys still struggle. 
I'm sorry. So, you know, that pain he suffered through. I can't even imagine. Picture someone that hopeless that life just isn't worth living. It just breaks my heart. And to think that he hand delivered the diagnosis, right? He told them there wasn't one trauma assessment done on him. Nobody even acknowledged that he spoke those words. Nobody put it together. And this is 2017. You know, we're not talking 2012. We're talking, you know, there are resources available. You know, the University of Cincinnati, where he took himself when he was, when he was suicidal the first time, has the UC Stress Center. It's, 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 it was created just for this purpose. Joey Votto from the Cincinnati Reds funded it. I mean, Kate Shard from the VA who's done enormous research on vets helped put this program in place. And this is for our first responders right here. Nobody sent us there. The IFF Center of Excellence was open. Nobody said, hey, we have this great resource for you. They treated him for substance abuse. And in the family classes, when I went, he's teaching leadership skills to these other individuals sitting around the group with him, you know, a 19-year-old heroin addict and a couple people that were sent there by their employers for, they got, they got caught with pot in their system. Um, he's given them life lessons and teaching them. And I'm thinking I had my husband back and in reality, this man was still suffering every day, just hid it from the rest of us. And so consequently, I'm a widow. I have six kids with no dad. I have a community of first responders that are still in 2021 suffering from his suicide. And it's just wrong. It's, it shouldn't be happening. So after he died, I'm trying to figure this out. You know, I, I'm an educated woman. How did I let this happen? I am absorbing so much pain and guilt. I start reading. And I found a book um, by Dan Willis. It's called Bulletproof Spirit. And I, I started reading that book and I was like, oh my gosh, he had the answers. He talked about this. So um, I contacted Dan and I'm like, I told him a brief bit of my story. And I said, this can't keep happening. And I, I decided that we would put on a seminar. So on the anniversary of his death, one year later, we threw this nonprofit together in July and um, I invited people, Kate Shard from the VA, um, Dr. Abby Morris 
from up at the IFF Center of Excellence, Dan Willis. I mean, I have people volunteering to come in here and help me. And we put this seminar on and I thought it'll be a one and done. I'm just gonna get up there as broken as I am. And I'm gonna say, hey, look, we got resources, here they are. And let's just get through this. So we did it. And within like three months, it was December. So shortly after our first seminar, I had my first phone call and it was a spouse. And she said, my husband is in the same place your husband went and he was suicidal and I'm not bringing him back into the house. She was living the same painful existence that I was living, only I was a year ahead of her. And she said, I, I can't take it anymore and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, if Chip were alive, I know I'd, where I'd go. I'd take him to the center of excellence. So she approached her husband and he refused. And I said, look, ask him if I go with him, if he would go, because he and my husband work together. And he said, yes. So I found myself escorting this guy to Maryland, met him in the airport. I mean, I knew who he was, but they were never close and he was younger than us. But I will tell you that I saw the same broken expression on his face that I saw on my husband's with his first attempt. It's this hopelessness that just makes me crumble. So we stood in line at the TSA crying like idiots. And of course, nobody knows, you know, talking about Chip, talking about his situation and our families and the brokenness. And neither one of us know what to expect. So I get him there and I drop him off and I'm just praying that they take care of him. And he came back, a new guy. I mean, it's not like it, it changed him. And the therapy they did gave him hope. And to, I have to say to this day, He's still a good friend of mine and he's doing well. His wife's doing well. The marriage recovered. Um, their kids are doing great. So it, it made me feel like, okay, Chip's gone, but we saved one. And then I get another call, another guy. I can't take this anymore. And I'm like, okay. So I start escorting people to the IFS Center of Excellence. And suddenly I have a law enforcement agent who he can't go to the IFF Center of Excellence because he's law. And I'm like, oh my gosh, well, he's got a gun in his hand at the time I get the call. So we get him settled and safe and I have to find a place for him to go. So I found a place in Texas called Warrior's Heart. They didn't take his insurance and it had a huge out-of-pocket costs and I'm like please you cannot let this happen so they scholarship him we provide funding to cover some of the cost and I'm like so this just didn't evolve like I thought it was going to evolve I thought it was going to be a one-time seminar and I'm out of here and it just kept coming so we're at 15 
first, maybe 17, 17 first responders now that we have either helped get to inpatient or luckily now it seems like the trend is people reaching out earlier and I'm getting connected with clinicians locally in their area so that they don't have to take that 30 to 40 day break away. Um, and now we're up to 30 in all that we have either provided resources to or family support or whatever. But um, so what I thought was just gonna be this tiny little nonprofit to help me grieve and get through it has become this bigger thing than I ever imagined. And you know, we're just taking it one day at a time. So it, you asked and I rambled. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, there are you, sitting out there who are going to sit here and relate. Because every time I do my seminar, I take those events in our marriage that I consider to be real life, um, real life examples of PTSD. And I put it out there and I say, okay, these are the things that I say pointed to his diagnosis the withdrawing, the sleeplessness, the um, agitated behavior, the um, flashbacks and the nightmares. And we fulfill every category that the DSM-5 says you need to fill in order to be diagnosed with PTSD. And when I do the presentation and I sit there and I look into the eyes of these people that won't look at me because I can't get through it without getting emotional. They turn their head, they look down. It's hard to watch a widow cry. It's hard to hear those stories, but I know now that they're sitting there and those, their own examples are rolling through their head of their flashbacks, of their nightmares, of their relationships with their spouses or their family or their kids or their other first responders. And they're starting to think, oh my gosh, I'm Chip Terry. So my words to those people are, you are Chip Terry and you can be the successful side of this story. You don't need to put your family through what we're living with. Um, my kids and I have all struggled. You know, it was years of struggling and I could witness things happening, especially to my two Marines because they weren't here when he died. And, and they were exhibiting the same risky behaviors and the alcohol and the relationship issues and um we got, we got help you know finally a very wise clinician said you guys need to practice what you preach you have suffered trauma too and it, it's like a light bulb went on and I'm thinking well I was just living with grief but really it's my own trauma my trauma glass isn't as full as our first responders but that certainly is traumatic to sit there and live through a suicide so my kids and I all went through something called EMDR, 
which is an evidence-based approach to treating trauma. And, you know, it took me three sessions. It took my Marines a couple sessions, but I can honestly say it, it made all the difference in the world. Um, I couldn't even begin to tell the story of how um, they came to my door the day he died without really losing it. I couldn't even finish the story. And now I can see the story. I can tell you what happened, but it, it, it still hurts and it's still grief. But that anxiety and that severe pain that paralyzes you is gone. So while I still cry and I still grieve, I also know that, you know, this is what he will want me to do. What you just said about when you're telling your story and people in the audience, you can see that they're relating their own experiences. When I first started doing this, you know, I'm not a public speaker and it scared me to death to do it. And then I realized, just tell your story. You know, it'll come out. You don't need a script. It'll come out. Sometimes it comes out really good. Sometimes not so good. But it's it's almost always within the group of first responders that people will not look at me. And I first thought they were just disinterested and rude. And what I've come to realize is they can't look because they're ready to break down too. And I hope there's more people that are reaching out for help and then I know about, you know, because we know now that the physiology of the brain is what causes this. The trauma causes the change in the brain and the brain causes all of these other outward symptoms, you know, the lack of sleep, the nightmares and the relationship issues. So what I thought was just being a jackass really was a guy with a mental health problem. So if he had cancer, I would have never lost my patience or my empathy for him. It would have never happened. But these people are suffering so silently. There's no outward sign other than their behaviors. But really, it is a serious problem. And, and I wish... You know, when I talk to the spouses, I'm like, I know how hard it is to be in that battle, to be in that relationship. But if I could do it all over again, I would be a different wife. You know, I would be that empathetic wife that's taking care of him and getting him the right help. And so many of them become patient. And I, I, I love these women because they begin to see I can affect the change. I can help him become a new man. Um, and it's, it's amazing how many relationships are held together by the strength of these women. Um, you know, I had one, one event where a spouse whose husband died from occupational cancer was angry and grieving. And she said, probably the most cruel thing I've ever heard in my life that she has no sympathy for the ones that commit suicide because her husband fought every day to live and they just quit. And it broke me to the core, but I didn't lash back out because I know it wasn't something she understood. 
So when I get comments like that or comments from other first responders that these people are weak and they're cowards and they're pussies and they just want a vacation or they're trying to get out of work or they're trying to get workers comp, I'll, I'll address those people because until you walk in their shoes, you have no idea what it's like. So, you know, when you understand the physiology of the brain, then come talk to me about them being weak and cowardly or not wanting to live because the ones I know that we've lost have fought a long, long battle, probably longer than some of those cancer battles are fought. You know, we're talking 2012, this man was fighting in 2012. How many others are out there that are still fighting? You just need the right direction. And then I think they'll have some hope. On my website, I have a page of resources dedicated to mental health. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to put a link to your website on there. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And then if there's any other resources that you would recommend, I'll put them in that section with, with your website as well. I think, you know, like Never Walk Alone, I don't know if you know about them, and of course, Bull's nonprofit, you know, Bull and I connected because of this tragedy, and we do so much together um, with the speaking, and we did our first seminar together in Florida, in Orlando, and I have to say, you know, I have people that go with me, my girls will go with me to the bigger ones to help me with, you know, all the other stuff you have to do, but that was our best seminar ever. And I would love to continue to do them like that. COVID knocked us out. Um, but hearing his story as a survivor, hearing a chief talk about, you know, what it costs to do some of the things that departments have to do, um, having clinicians speak about the real therapy that's working not just IOPs for substance abuse, the way to test it, the way to diagnose it. I mean, it, it really was a great, it is probably the best seminar we've ever done. And um, it triggers change. And, you know, that's what your podcast will do. Um, so yeah, Never Walk Alone is City of Miami. Never Walk Alone Miami is a nonprofit and um, Yami Diaz is the contact person I work with there out of the city of Miami, Never Walk Alone Miami. And they have created a nice website with a lot of Florida resources on it. I mean, they did a great job with theirs. So specific Florida resources you can contact there, but they are a, they are an, a unique organization as well. We partner with them too. So when I, when I posted on Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you. I got several messages telling me what an amazing woman you are. And uh, I mean, I was very eager to, to do this interview just for the simple fact of what you're doing and, and how it 
I started this podcast as a way to help people develop as leaders. And I, I wrote a book. It's currently in the editing phase with, with an editor. Um, and one of the components of the book, is, I talk about self-leadership and the importance of self-leadership. And part of that component is knowing yourself and knowing when you need to get help and not ignoring that and realizing that it isn't, you're not broken. You, you can't fight physiology without the appropriate tools. And if you can educate yourself and, and sometimes it's just uh, a lack of awareness of, you know, no, I'm not broken. And that overwhelming feeling of I'm lost and there's nothing that I can do. And you're just waiting yeah. you really are just you know passing time and and it's costing you so much in life and and chip would have loved chip tried that you know which yeah, he was a leader and, and you will not come across many people that did not like his leadership style. And he did the self-testing, the self-awareness. He knew he needed help. So I don't feel like, um, I, I think in the end, he, his note, um, he talks about how some mental health illnesses are terminal, like some can cancers. And he had, it, it's just heartbreaking to think that in all of his research, he didn't come across anything that gave him hope that he could have sought out. I think he put all of his chips in the basket over at this UC and came up empty handed. And that's not really the case. And when we did our stand down last year for um, Covington, with COVID, we had to cancel our annual seminar here. And I was in Florida with Bull when one of the firefighters from his department reached out and said, I can't let this go. Will you come back and do a stand down? And I was asking a lot, you'll have to do the same presentation, three shifts, twice a day, every shift, so we can get everybody in here. But I can't, and he was clearly still broken three years after Chip's death. We cried on the phone talking about it. This was a friend of his, 30-year veteran. And, and he said to me, I believe that Chip was such a leader and a teacher that he's still teaching from beyond the grave. And he's reaching more people than he ever would have reached with our little City of Covington department right now, but his story, of tragedy is one that we can turn into one of hope. And 
Chip would always say um, when he was wrong, but the city and the house with the kids, when he made a mistake, he owned it. And, and it was the probably the strongest quality he had in our marriage. And he taught me a lot about leadership. So when he was wrong, he owned it. And I usually conclude my conversation with a part of his suicide letter. And I, I tell him, you know, this is one instance I wish you were in front of me where I could say, you got this wrong because it's not terminal. And we're seeing evidence of that every day with 30 first responders that are alive, that I've worked with, that Bulls worked with, that are making progress and the relationships are being repaired. You know, these, these, these individuals that accomplish suicide, right? Their pain is definitely gone, but they have just shared it with the rest of us. And so we will carry it with us every day. And I know no one thinks about that. They just want to release themselves. But if they knew the damage they caused, a lot of them would probably stop themselves. They're just not thinking. The rational brain is not thinking. I could go on all day about this, but you're doing a great job, Dave. I appreciate it. Thank you. And you, you're more amazing than I think uh, what others were capable of sharing through messages. I um, really appreciate you coming on. You've you've moved me more more than you know, and it uh, really strengthens my resolve to do more to to help. Well, if there's anything I can do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Likewise. Well, you know, and I'll be happy to put your information on our website as well and credit you with all the good work you're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.